This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. We need another shutdown. That's the message from more than 150 health experts who are pleading with politicians issue another shelter-in-place order and slow the spread of the virus. Their letter also criticizing officials for reopening too soon. Two experts who signed on, they're going to speak to us. The uh, reopening of schools, it has been, as I'm sure all of you know, a big political issue during this pandemic. President Trump has called for schools to reopen, but teachers quickly pushed back, saying their health is at risk. Well, now the CDC put out new guidelines that really seem to advocate for schools to open. So is the Trump administration trying to influence the CDC or... Is the CDC basing its view on science? There are a lot of unknowns about the virus. We frequently talk about them. One of the big mysteries, why do some people get really, really sick and others just don't? They're totally fine. We're going to talk about why we're seeing different reactions to the virus. Uh, Doctors may have now an answer, or at least they're closer to one. Next week, Republicans are expected to release their version of the coronavirus relief plan. And it appears the GOP legislation will include another round of direct payments and plans to protect businesses from being sued for coronavirus outbreaks, which Democrats are not happy about. So you will hear from an expert who will predict what the new coronavirus relief bill will look like and why he thinks people should save their stimulus checks for potential tax increases. And if the movie theaters reopen, but there's no movies for them to show, what happens? With coronavirus cases surging in parts of the U.S., there is a call now to shut down the country again. More than 100 prominent medical experts, teachers, nurses, and others have signed a letter asking political leaders to start over. They say the best thing for the nation is not to reopen as quickly as possible. It's to save as many lives as possible. With us are two experts who signed on to this. First, Angela Rasmussen, virologist and research scientist with the Center for Infection and Immunity at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, and Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, oncologist and vice provost for global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, former chair of the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health and former Obama White House policy advisor. Thanks you both for joining us. Dr. Emanuel, I'll start with you. Why do you think we need to go back inside? Well, you know, we had a peak in uh, April, um, and frankly, uh, things got a little better, and then they've gotten much worse. We're at, a, you know, between 65 and 70,000 new cases. Uh, deaths are back up at uh, around 1,000 a day. Um, we're having a, you know, serious problem. And when you look at other countries, uh, whether it's Canada or Germany uh, and most of Europe, They've actually been able to come down successfully. We need a coordinated national effort. That's what we never had, and that's what we need. We need uh, to stop uh, doing uh, things that we seem to be spreading, you know, indoor restaurants and bars, indoor beauty salons, massage, uh, tattoo parlors. We need to get back to only essential things. That doesn't mean people can't go out and enjoy nature uh, uh, work in parks, go for walks, it does mean that the non-essential activities need to be curtailed and we need to have uniform face masks. Then when the country gets back down to zero in about six to eight weeks, 
uh, or zero, a very low level, then we slowly and in phase open up. People seem to have learned the lesson, and we need to actually do it uniformly. So, Angela, we could do that, I guess, but when we come out of this second one, hypothetically speaking, will things be in place to make sure we just don't end up where we are now? Because you got to have a lockdown, and then, if you're going to do it, you got to have the testing apparatus, you got to have contact tracing so you can isolate and things just don't spread again. That's absolutely right. We need to really learn our lesson from the first time that we reopened too quickly and without adequate testing and tracing capacity. Um, that's the main reason why we are where we are right now. Um, and that's also the reason why we really need to have a concerted national effort, as Dr. Emanuel was just saying. Um, we really need to get this down low enough that our current existing testing capacity and the contact tracing capacity that has really kind of been implemented in different ways in different states is going to be adequate to allow us to slowly reopen safely. Well, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Emanuel, let me challenge you uh, on something here, Uh, because some uh, other experts have said, you know, we could control this without another uh, widespread shutdown, just if we can get more people to wear masks. And one of the you mentioned indoor hairdressing, and that's been a big sticking point here in California where they just stopped it. And the CDC only last week put out a study that was done where two of the people, and we had, the, by the way, the lead author of that study on this program, where you had two of the hairstylists who were both infected uh, with COVID-19. They were both sick with COVID-19. They treated, I believe it was 148 clients, but because everybody wore masks, no one got sick and no one even got infected. So wouldn't that be enough if more people just wore masks? No. I mean, you know, masks reduce the risk, but I don't think they reduce them enough, especially when you are next to someone for a prolonged period of time uh, and, you know, if you're potentially sick. I I, I mean, again, I, I think masks are something we should do. I was way out ahead of the CDC in advocating that we use masks, uh, but they're not a cure-all. <laughs> they're not a vaccine. They're not a prophylactic medicine, um, and I think we shouldn't behave like that. We should, yes, encourage everyone to ma- wear masks when they're outside, but in an enclosed space where you're going to have close personal contact, and remember, 40% of the people are asymptomatic and can spread this even if they don't feel sick. And that's a big part of our problem here. Dr. Rasmussen, you probably signed on to this letter knowing that there's not an appetite from a lot of people to go back and do this again. So what do you say if someone says, you, we can't. We can't do it for six to eight weeks. We can't shut down the businesses again. They're not going to survive. Well, I mean, that is, that is another problem uh, that, that we really need a national effort to take care of. So it's not just enough to to ask people to lock down again. I mean, you're right. Nobody has an appetite for that. I personally don't have an appetite for that. And I've been locked down since March, effectively. Um, People need to have support, financial support for themselves, for their businesses, for their homes, their livelihoods. They need to have be able to put food on the table. They need resources to get through another lockdown. So part of a lockdown, um, being that it is necessary, I believe, uh, really needs to come with additional legislation that will provide support for people uh, who are going to suffer because of another lockdown. Dr. Angela Rasmussen at Columbia University, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks to you both. The CDC 
put out new guidelines on education and child care that really seem to favor reopening schools. It says kids don't suffer much from the coronavirus and besides are less likely than adults to spread it. Now, is this based in science or is the CDC letting politics creep in. With us is Lily Eskelson-Garcia, teacher and president of the National Education Association. So it seemed the White House was not too happy with the first round of guidelines from the CDC. These are a little different. It says what? There's like four million teachers and support staff that work in our public schools. It really does take a village. All of us had this collective gasp and a chill down our backs as it was uh, just open the schools. The kids are fine. And, you, you know, they all left in a hurry. Bring them all back in. It's time to do that. And when folks rightfully pointed out that would be against the, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC's guidelines, he said, well, those guidelines are too are too strong. <laughs> we need weaker health guidelines. And and oh my goodness, they're expensive. It's going to cost money for face masks and disinfectant. Oh, well, we don't have money for that. Just just put them all in there and we'll work it out. No, we, we want a plan. And so we were, uh, we were more than uh, worried at these new uh, guidelines. And here, it, there's good news and bad news. Because the good news is once you kind of dig through all of the political statements, uh, political meaning that they aren't bad statements, but they're in context of a global pandemic. So what they changed was they put in things that we don't disagree with, saying kids do better in face-to-face instruction. Kids should, um, you know, are, 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 it's going to be better for kids' social-emotional growth. Uh, for some of these kids, that school nurse is their primary care physician. They get their nutrition programs from that school. They're going to go hungry if they don't have school lunch. All of those things are true. Um, and then they threw in things like, and you don't have to really worry about large groups of kids in overcrowded classrooms and underventilated areas because they, you know, chances are they're going to be okay. Well, the jury's still out on, yeah, the jury's still out on that, that, though. That is not, yeah, that is not a scientific fact. And by the way, um, there is very strong evidence that kids can um, be asymptomatic and carry it and hug grandma. Um, The other thing that we noticed that there's not one word, even from uh, Donald Trump, when he said, look, you don't have to worry about kids the same way you worry about adults. Oh, there's no adults in those (laughs) those schools, really? (laughs) Yeah, right, the teachers. Wait, 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 wait. Can we just talk about all those adults? So, so, so Lily, yeah, what, what, that was the part that it didn't talk okay, about. Okay, so so going forward, so now you have these these sort of conflicting views. You've got the CDC, which is saying, yeah, it's fine to have kids in school. And as you pointed out, the adults, well, <laughs> that's okay, too. Uh, what will teachers, do you think, do now in most parts of the country in light of the, the feds are going to say, look, the CDC's guideline says it's fine? Well, we are going to put our children's uh, safety first. And by the way, we kind of want to be safe ourselves. I had 39 sixth graders in my class one year. That was not healthy before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I you, bet. Have you, been, have you been in a boys' room lately? Those little boys are little monsters, and they're dirty little things. And so, yeah, that it's a germ factory on a good day in a public school. So here's what we're going to do. You pull the science 
out of that CDC report. The science is still intact, and here's what it says very, very uh, there's a lot of ifs in here. If you're going to open a school safely, this is what you do. Every school has to say, what's the infection rate in my community? Is it under control? That is job one. And that's the part people don't even look at, really. If uh, you're going to be able to distance kids so they aren't shoulder-to-shoulder coughing on each other. If you have the masks, the disinfectants, the sanitizing stations. And this is another good one, the last one. If you're able to have those daily health screenings, if you got COVID testing to detect who might be infected so you can isolate that person. Um, and here's the most important thing it says that no one's talking about. It's not a menu on a restaurant. You actually have to do all of these things. <laughs> if you pick and choose, yeah. you know, then it's going to be a disaster. And what's going to happen if we don't do this right? We're going to send those kids home. The teachers will be infected. People are going to die. And what happens in a community? You have now created your super spreader, and it's going to be your middle school in your neighborhood, and you will have spiked it. And all of the sacrifices that we have all been making low these many months to say, we'll stay home, we'll wear masks, we'll do our part, if you end up with someone doing this wrong for political reasons, to get some jobs report up, to get mom and dad back to work, and we don't care about the kids, um, then it will all be for naught. You know, you know Lily, I, I'm guessing you're a real bang-up teacher. I'm a, I am was the Utah teacher of the year. <laughs> I was, I am we believe it. You would want your kid in my class. <laughs> Lily Eskelson-Garcia, teacher, president of the National Education Association. We've been hearing for months about asymptomatic coronavirus cases. People are walking around with the virus, don't even know they have it, while others get hit hard and some die. Why such a massive difference? It could be what are called T-cells, which are part of our immune system with us to explain what T-cells are and how they work to stop this virus is... Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, formerly worked as an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC. So, doctor, we concentrate so much on the antibodies. What do we need to know about these T-cells? Well, the antibodies, of course, are one arm of our immune system, the T-cells. The T cells are another. And sometimes when people get sick, our immune system responds and the T cell arm can over respond. And when that happens, not only does the immune system fight the virus, but you get collateral damage. And that can cause some of the pneumonia that we're seeing. So some of the pneumonia is due to viral damage, but the rest is due to an over exuberant response by our immune system. We're hurting ourselves. It's collateral damage. Now, here's one of the things that that I find really interesting. In the very early days of this pandemic, I remember we had um, one or two experts, uh, not you uh, for this, uh, on the program. And we asked the question, since this is a coronavirus and some, you know, colds, pedestrian type head colds, are in the coronavirus family, could there be some cross-immunity? And back then, it was kind of poo-pooed. I remember people saying, nah, if that were the case, we would it would be more obvious. But I keep reading now about studies that seem to indicate that some people, maybe a lot of people, 
do have a sort of immunity or partial immunity to this virus because what? They had a cold in the past? Well, that's still very much under debate in the public health and the virological and the immunological community. Still very much under study. Could previous infections with the human coronavirus provide some modulating effect, some protection against severe disease by this new COVID virus that's come upon us? Uh, I'm still in the middle, waiting to see more studies. How would that work? I heard it described once as, you know, every virus is like a puzzle piece. And sometimes you go through life and you just get lucky and you randomly got a puzzle piece that more or less fits in with whatever you're going to come across within the world. And these people are just lucky people. Well, if it happened, what would happen is that the human coronaviruses would, in effect, prime our immune system so that when this rogue COVID virus comes along, our immune system already has some head start, if you will. It has some partial recognition of this virus, so it gets an earlier start in fighting it off. Well, does that make biological sense to you? Oh, sure, because there are other viruses where you have that kind of cross activity and even some cross protection. But it's different for every virus. Each one you have to study separately. And this COVID is so new, we don't really have a definitive answer again uh, for this issue yet. Let's give you the question we usually ask you. How far along are we on treatments? Anything promising that you see? Well, sure. Uh, we're treating people much better now because we know much better how the virus can affect the body. And we have three treatments that seem to help. This drug remdesivir a steroid, dexamethasone, and convalescent plasma. So we are doing better in treatment, and there are more trials of drugs for treatment that are underway, and some of those may finish up this summer, and we'll get some more news. And then, of course, we're working on vaccines. Everybody's heard about that, and uh, that work progresses very, very intensely. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine, Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. It's become more certain Congress will not pass a new coronavirus relief bill before the end of this month. Never mind that the $600 per week federal unemployment benefit will dry up in just days. This while millions of Americans are worried how they are going to stay afloat. So what will it take for Republicans and Democrats to come together and pass the new relief bill? Scott Deakle, associate professor and chair of the Department of Business and Economics at Ursinus College, spoke with KYW's Matt Leon to give his predictions on what the new package might look like. At this point, it seems like Republicans are talking in the area of a trillion. Of course, we've already had the Democrats kind of in the clubhouse, three, three and a half trillion when it's all said and done, do you think we basically split the, the number and we'll end up after negotiations somewhere around two million? What do you think? Or two trillion, rather? What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm not a political scientist, but uh, I think that's a reasonable guess that it'd be somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I think uh, the Republicans are under more pressure now because of the surge in cases in the South and the West. Uh, that's forced a lot of businesses to close as a result of new uh, shutdown orders. And so I think that provides greater motivation to provide a bigger stimulus package. As someone who studies these types of things that we've talked about previous bills, what are some of the, the big 
issues that absolutely, in your opinion, have to be addressed and you think will be addressed? Right. Well, I, I think, uh, again, there's going to be a need for direct payments to households like was done in the first package. And right now, it looks like there's pretty broad consensus on that. There's some disagreement over the details of exactly who should get paid. But everyone agrees that, you know, people who filed tax returns uh, that have been you know, in the workforce uh, should get a payment from the government. So I fully expect to see that again. And it, it looks like it would at least be in the range that was passed out last time where uh, a married couple get about $1,200 as long as their income together was below $150,000. And that can increase depending on how many children you have. There's some disagreement over whether, say, college students should get a payment. Um, so that remains to be worked out. But I would definitely expect that. Uh, the president's voiced support for it. Senate Republicans are voicing support for it for the most part. And the House Democrats have already put it in the stimulus bill they passed uh, back in May. So I expect that. Another program that looks really likely to survive and continue is one we've talked about before as well, Matt. Uh, that's the payroll protection program where uh, the government made uh, loans to businesses and those loans became grants as long as the businesses used most of the money to keep employees on the payroll. So there's evidence that that saved jobs. Uh, you could debate whether it was worth the cost um, or the best way to save those jobs, but it definitely seems to be effective. And uh, the Treasury Sec Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, has signaled his support for continuing it. And in fact, he uh, wants to make it easier uh, for businesses to qualify for that program. So I, I don't see a lot of opposition to that continuing. So I think there's a good chance we'll see payroll protection program continue for a while. The areas that look like are going to have the big conflicts uh, are unemployment insurance, and also aid to states. And I could actually think of a third one too, which is liability protections for businesses. And I think those three areas are probably where we're going to see like uh, what we call the horse trading taking place. Um, with regards to the unemployment insurance payments, uh, Democrats would love to see the $600 federal top off on state unemployment insurance payments continue. Uh, the Republicans are really opposed to that though, because uh, they see about two-thirds of workers who are collecting unemployment insurance making more on unemployment than they did when they had a job. And so that creates a real uh, disincentive to go back to work. The counter-argument there is that uh, it gives uh, workers who are uncomfortable, feel unsafe going back to work, or can't get child care, uh, the buffer they need to get through this tough time. So that's going to be an area of, of contention. The aid to states is another big one. A lot of uh, Democrats say that uh, state governments need help. They haven't gotten the tax revenues that they normally get for obvious reasons. When restaurants are closed, when bars are closed, when all kinds of businesses can't open, they're not collecting sales tax, employees aren't paying income tax. And so state budgets are going to take a big hit. Those state budgets trickle down to the local level too. They fund our schools. So we're looking at a situation where state governments are going to need to close these budget gaps. They're going to have to do it with tax increases and cutting programs. And it's going to mean programs that a lot of us rely on, like our local schools. You may see uh, layoffs as a result at local schools. You may see programs cut. Uh, you may see facilities uh, 
defer their maintenance and uh, defer improvements. So that's a case for sending some federal aid to states, which can't borrow as easily as the federal government. They can't run deficits the same way as the federal government. But there's a real resistance to that. Uh, the Republicans are pointing to problems with state uh, pensions for their employees. Uh, a lot of uh, northern Midwestern states have very big liabilities. Uh, a lot of those liabilities are to unionized employees. And a lot of Republicans have objections to money uh, bailing out, as they say, states that uh, have these liabilities. So that's going to be a big issue that's going to need to be resolved. I don't have a crystal ball on that one, but uh, uh, it's going to have to be worked out one way or another. Um, I would say for the average consumer, keep an eye on it. Um, if you see a federal stimulus bill passed that uh, is sending you a $1,200 check but has no aid for states, uh, I recommend setting aside some of that check to pay for a state tax increase coming over the next year or so. So many industries have been hit hard by the pandemic and lockdowns, one of the biggest being the movie industry. Studios are not making films right now, and well, theaters aren't open to show them, at least not yet. AMC delayed reopening its theaters until next month at the earliest. <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens with that one. <laughs> but what movies will be playing? The theater chains now pushing the studios to release their big blockbusters so they have something to play and everybody can, you know, make some money. Jason Squire is a professor at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and editor of the movie business book. Um, professor, it seems like there's not much of a movie business right now because there's not. So are we just waiting for next summer for all of these? Well, that's what it looks like. This has been very destructive to the three main pillars of the theatrical side of the business, uh, production, distribution, and exhibition. It's really upended the, uh, the entertainment industry uh, and, of course, the broader economy. Well, and, and what happens, I mean, let's say, and I can't even begin to pick a, a time frame. Let's say in a year or a year and a half they can open safely movie theaters and people want to go back. So then they start releasing the uh, movies that are in the can. But in the interim, they're not, of course, as we mentioned, they're not making new movies right now. So what do they do then? Because so they have this backlog of films, but they still have to then crank everything back up. It sounds like a nightmare. Well, no doubt they are all, you know, the great minds at the studios. And make no mistake, these are really smart people, very talented are readdressing the pipeline. As you say, production has halted. Uh, we just read a day ago, I think, that Tom Cruise is off to Iceland to continue short, to start shooting his Missing Impossible movie. Uh, the uh, parameters that have been placed by unions properly on production have you know, slowly, slowly introduced these protocols. And the question becomes, when will production really kick in? And that's unclear uh, as far as for all of the platforms beyond theatrical, uh, streaming, everybody else. Uh, beyond that, uh, distribution has shifted their calendar by approximately eight months, maybe a year, as you've said. And uh, as a result, the uh, financial patterns of uh, this side of the business will simply have a gap, as most industries will, that we hope, is only affecting 2020, 2021. So it's going to take longer to do these things. It's going to take more money to do these things, but that's for the movie studios trying to make the movies. What about the theater chains who are saying, 
bring us some films so we can we reopen. Uh, what happens to them, and then what happens to them? You know, if nobody wants to go and gather in a theater right now. Exactly, that is where we are, isn't it? It is very sad and historic. There has never been a total shutdown of exhibition in North America. Uh, there have been stalls every now and then historically because of crises. But this is an original, and it has, as you say, a harsh impact on the exhibition business. Only those businesses that have exhibition holdings but are otherwise relatively healthy, comparatively healthy, will survive. Um, could, it, could, could it be, and, and look, I don't want to be the one to sound a death knell here, but, but I mean, you know, there is, periodically there's always been talk about whether or not the movie, uh, not the business, but, but the, the business of showing films in right. theaters, if that was coming to an end with streaming and things like that, could this, though, be that event? Can this be the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs? <laughs> hey, we have to see that movie. Wait a second. <laughs> now, this has been, the death knell of exhibition has been quietly uh, playing for a good many decades. And it's really, it's simply not in the cards. A fundamental need of people in general, I think it's ingrained, it's in the DNA, is to gather and rejoice. This is also, this is timeless in terms of going back to a Greek tragedy. Um, the idea of people getting together to enjoy an entertainment in the dark is unparalleled, and so I have no fear of the absence of exhibition. It is just sad to have the sense that smaller exhibition companies may be in uh, tough spots and there will be uh, restructuring and uh, combining as a result. And that is a, that is a bit of jeopardy for almost every business going through this pandemic. So maybe the model just changes to how we've gotten Correct. not used to it. Correct. Like the overseas markets get it first, because maybe they can go to theaters, and then different parts of the U.S. before others, and we just have to live with it, because what else are we going to do? If you can't go to see the movie because your movie theater isn't showing it, then you're not seeing the movie. Correct. And the upshot is, when all is said and done, customers have more choices because of streaming. And so they went out, and creators have more choices because of streaming and because of self-distribution, which is something people could not do 10 years ago. So one, when, when this settles down, and because we all hope that that is soon, when it settles down, the new normal will be characterized by this sort of growth spurt and an environment where both customers and creators and distributors uh, will be back on track in a kind of new normal. Do you think that this event, the pandemic, is going to fundamentally change the kinds of scripts that will be given the green light for movies? Are, are movies going to have to take into account this event in world history, or do they forget about it and just stick to pure entertainment? You take it into account, in my opinion, as any major historic event, a world war, um, the, uh, the drug issues, uh, social events all take their proper place in storytelling. Uh, I do shudder at the idea of having countless projects 
countless examples of content two years down the line where everyone is wearing masks and referring <laughs> to the pandemic. So that, I hope, does not happen. I hope it takes its proper place. Jason Squire, professor in USC School of Cinematic Arts. He's got that book, The Movie Business Book. You know, if you remember, uh, Mike, uh, we talked, I think, the other day about how if you have enough money, there are places in the country where you can actually rent your own movie theater. Yes. You know, and, and you can go and, and kind of sit there by yourself, eat popcorn and watch a movie. And I do kind of wonder if that isn't going to be the future that a bunch of people, you know, they'll have like small theaters, you know, where you can go in with like 10 people that like you know. Like little pods. Yeah, like little pods. You go in with like 10 people and, you know, you know them, they disinfect the room before you go in. You sit there, you pay money, you eat your hot dog, whatever, uh, watch the movie and then you all go home. I saw some tweet that was talking about, you know, the movies are postponed, all the delays. They said, can you imagine how old we'll be when we finally get to like Avatar 5? <laughs> oh, so many years down the line now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you have a good weekend. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I understand, though, that uh, some people are claiming that by the time we get to Avatar 10, it's going to be fantastic. We'll be living in it.